I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. Good evening and hello and welcome to For Your Ears Only. It's the only James Bond podcast that's a spinoff of the Optimism Vaccine Network. I am your host, Jake Tropila. Joined as always is Jack Eason. Jack, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Very, very good. Thank you very much, Jack. So uh, I want to apologize to our listeners in advance if the audio is a little wonky in this episode. We're trying a completely different setup here. Just uh, chalk it up to the resources we had available. But uh, we're going to give it the old college try and run with it. So uh, without further ado, let's get on to the show. And uh, Jack, how you been since the last we spoke about James Bond? I, I've been doing well. I've been, been reading up on this one and enjoying it. I'd say the whole point of this is basically giving me an excuse to rewatch all of these movies. I don't think I've seen this one in like... 20 something years I, I literally i only remembered poison shoe so poison shoe this is it's iconic it's iconic so this was a this was a very necessary catch-up for sure for sure yeah so uh let's get into it shall we from russia with love is what we're talking tonight released in 1963 directed by terence young who also directed dr no uh sean connery's second and if i may be so bold to say i think is his finest hour as james bond uh we got a real it's a real rollicking caper i guess you can say with plenty of spy intrigue and action and uh i i think uh fans would certainly consider this as one of the best bond films if not the best uh everyone certainly has debates as to what is their favorite what's not their favorite but i Revisiting this, I found this to be uh, better than I remembered, and I remember loving it. I always hold it near the top, um, but uh, yeah, From Russia with Love is uh, is a superb film, to uh, to put it mildly. Uh, yeah, Jack, what are yeah, your it, thoughts? It's, it's definitely um, overcoming the, the difficult second album. Uh, this one is really nails it, uh, you know, following up from Dr. No, which was a, a good success, not a runaway success, but it definitely show the markets could sustain some more James Bond. And they really, they, they pulled out all the stops on this one. I know they like doubled the budget on this one compared to Dr. No based on the success of that movie. And yeah. they made a huge amount of more money, but like they really opened this, this really, you can see, see them just kind of opening the throttle on the, the franchise, kind of getting a better sense of what they're doing. And this really, I mean, we'll discuss it more as we go through. But this, to me, this is very much this is a James Bond movie fully formed. It really has almost all of the things that I, I you know, recollect and expect of a of a James Bond movie. Yeah, it's amazing watching this, and then after watching Doctor No, like Doctor No, I thought arrived almost fully formed. You know, there's a few things that could be considered missing. Um, but this from Russia with Rev really takes all, all the elements that work from Dr. No and fine tunes them to make a very, very near perfect Bond film, I would say. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a lot to go into here. Um, this film moves at a breakneck pace. Oh yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's, uh, one of the many globe trotting bonds as you know, they, they travel by boat and by train, um, <laughs> 
Yeah. The, so yeah, let's get into it. Uh, do you remember the first time you ever saw this? And uh, I know you mentioned Poison Shoe was your the only image. Yeah, I, I don't rem- I don't remember when I <clears throat> excuse me I don't remember when I first saw this. I mean, I was a kid. Obviously, I was probably less than ten first time I saw it. I. Yeah. Probably caught it on TV sometime. Probably one of those, you know, weekend matinees. Just sort of like just showed up on uh, on the television. This is probably one of the first Bond movies I ever saw. But like I say, um, yeah, I mean, I saw. I think I saw. This is one of those films that I'm. I'm honestly not sure I've ever seen it in its entirety before. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that long. I know I've seen big chunks of it on TV over the years. Uh, so yeah, it's just kind of like I feel like all the James Bond movies eventually kind of. Um, mesh together into just one big uh, helicopter boat explosion, um, <laughs> but this and this this movie definitely fits that template. But yeah, the poison shoe is really kind of the iconic image of it that survived in my memory because it's such a it's such an odd scene. I mean, that's we're talking about one of the later scenes in it, but I mean, it's just yeah. sort of such a, an unusual quirk. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of it. I, I don't really like I say I don't really have a, a particular kind of recollection of it as a kid it was just another bond movie that was on but uh, going back and watching it now definitely it's one of those movies that uh like you say it, it really it, it opened if we were talking about dr no last time and dr no feels no it's it like dr no has plenty it's got great pacing plenty of event but it's a very linear feeling story it very much kind of pulls you through the the events this one feels much more chaotic while still you know being it's not a messy film by any means but it's like there's just so much they managed to put into this movie it just zips along between there's several lines of intrigue and will they won't they and all kinds of things and then the boats and the helicopters and you know i think we're missing a car chase but that's about it yeah it's interesting because uh, it does zip along but also a lot of the sequences really seem to carry on at this this sort of refined deliberate pacing which is um, it has a very classical feel to it, um, but you're right about the plot. It's a very it's a film that's just loaded with names and faces on all sides, and you feel like you need to take notes during it, which is exactly what I did to kind of keep up with what's going on because it doesn't. It, once you're on board, it does not it does not look back. It is. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad if you ahead. Yeah, I'm glad if you took notes on the plot, because if you had to tell me what the plot is of this right now, I, I'd give you a very rough approximation, but I don't exactly remember whether which things happened first and which things they led to. It's all, you know, it, it, it turns into just kind of like, there's this weird man chase element between Bond and Grant, the, the Russian super spy. There's yeah. the, the yeah, it's, it, yeah, there's, I'd say, multiple lines. It's, it's Spectre playing Russia against the British Secret Service. There's no American connection in this movie. This is just Bond out on his own, pretty much. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those movies that definitely just kind of ups the details. And it starts right at the very first scene. I, and I think the first scene is just a, a, it sets the pacing or the, it sets the tone for the film, I think, really well because it's such a cinematic conceit. Yeah. It involves it involves an assassination of seemingly the death of James Bond in the opening couple of minutes of the film, and then it turns out it's actually a training practice to catch James Bond. But just for authenticity's sake, they dressed the guy up as James Bond with a mask and everything, yeah, which they, is you know such a pointless that you would why would you do that? But it, yeah, it, it makes perfect makes sense. No sense. But you're you're right; it is a very cinematic conceit, and you can imagine audiences back then probably they probably didn't have faith in them as to not uh not show their hero who they all came back for 
So, of course, they want to pit Bond in this first uh, pre-title sequence. And it really sort of raises the question, like, oh, no, what if Bond meets his equal and he's bested? And that's where we're introduced to this Red Grant character who's played by Robert Shaw, a.k.a. Quint from Jaws. And uh, let me tell you, the first time I learned that, it blew my mind that this crusty old sailor was once this this handsome, murdering psychopath. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, because that's interesting, actually, with Jaws, because the connection for me was, because I guess because it's the most recent movie I've seen, it was taking a pal in one, two, three, where he plays Mr. Blue. Um, but yeah, he, and he always, he, like, it was, it's interesting with Jaws, because he, he played villains a lot in his movies, and uh, Jaws was one of the ones where he just played a crusty old sea dog. Yeah, he's not really a hero in that movie. He's sort of, but everybody loves everybody loves him. But he's uh, not trying to kill anyone, though. So it's a little, you know, it's like taking taking a little bit of the responsibility off him or the bad guy tone yeah. off him. So yeah, we get our first uh, pre-title or excuse me, credit sequence where uh, all the uh, credits are projected onto the uh, the glowing bodies of belly dancers. Very, very classily putting yeah, 007 right across a lady's uh, boobs right off, the, you know, right off the bat. Welcome oh, to 1963. That happens a lot. You'll, you'll find. <laughs> I believe in a, in a view to a kill, a woman unzips her her vest and 007 is painted across her chest. So uh, yeah, you'll see you'll see plenty of that. Don't worry. I wonder, I wonder how many how many breasts Roger Moore has signed in his lifetime. I guess <laughs> we could do some research for when that one comes up. We'll get those numbers for you people. <laughs> All right, so uh, we open and uh, we're introduced to Spectre, and uh, in many ways, this is actually one of the first sequels ever made because they reference the events of Doctor No, which I think is interesting when you consider like what is the first official sequel, and I guess you could say From Russia with Love certainly qualifies. So Spectre has this plot to steal this uh, cryptography device called the Lecter, and they want to steal it from the Russian consulate in Turkey, and they're going to play one of their agents, Tatiana Romanova, against uh, James Bond, a British Secret Service agent. And meanwhile, they're all going to be shadowed by this killer, Red Grant. And uh, it's like a, it's a very intense chess game, uh, to pull a metaphor from Kronstein, the, the guy playing chess and the inspector. He's, he's a great character because he's literally the director of planning. Yeah. Which really, which really sets out that, that Spectre, for all their malevolence and evil, are kind of like, you know, going for an ISO 9000, you know, a certification, probably doing, you know, a bunch of other business actualization seminars to work out, you know, multi-tiered strategies for, <laughs> you know, better business, you know. It's yeah. like, why is he director of planning? And he's and he's determined to be, he's a great planner because he plays chess. And again, actually, it's something that struck me because I, I, what I like about this film is that they, they really work. They go out of their way to introduce subterfuge. And we're, we're introduced to Kronstein and he's playing chess. And someone sneaks him a note telling him that he has to leave to meet with Blofeld. But they could, it's really just a note saying, hey, we, you know, we need you. And they sneak it to him on a napkin, so he reads it through the bottom of his glass. It's like you could have just handed it to him. It's chess. It's I don't 
you know, I don't think this is a significant problem. It's just, just handed to him. And then he's so good at chess. He like, oh, well, I better finish this up quickly. And he just beats the other guy then. Like, takes the guy if, in the next move, yeah. Yeah, takes the guy as if, like, chess is something. It was like, well, I was going to drag this out for four hours, but you know what? I guess I'll just win and I'll win now. You know, like, that's how that's how good he is. And weirdly enough, he played a chess player in his very next movie, the actor, uh, which I think is just a oh. weird coincidence. Um, yeah, in Return from the Ashes, which was about two years later, um, which is another British uh, kind of World World War Two era. Um, I think it's like a psychological thriller or some description. Interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he he plays a chess club manager in that. So I guess chess is just writ large into into his career. Yeah, um, typecast is the chess guy. Just the chess dude. That's yeah. that's what he's all about. Um, but yeah, it's 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 one of those things I really enjoy in the movies to see that Spectre have a director of planning, and there's again like these multiple layers of, of subterfuge where we have James Bond, a man dressed as James Bond for no practical reason, and then we have sneaking a note to a guy so he can leave for a secret meeting. Uh, you know, it's kind of these things. It's like they could just organize this really easily, but no, it's cooler when you slip the note to the guy. You know. Yeah, and I imagine audiences back then were going crazy for these sort of details, too, because it's not something that you would see in everyday films. I mean, nowadays you get all kinds of dumb bullshit, like text messages and stuff. But yeah, back then, this is really sort of a one of a kind deal. And uh, so we're introduced to Spectre and they basically lay out the plan and a a full 17 minutes of the film go by before we're introduced to James Bond in proper. And a uh, couple, couple things I've noticed, noted about this scene. Um, the theme song from Russia with Love plays, but it's actually playing, it's diegetic. It's playing on a radio of a guy who's on just a, like a passing gondola in the river. I don't know if you caught that. And, I, and it, the music fades out as he, as he leaves the frame. Yeah, yeah, they've, they've got that, which, which I thought was a little, yeah, it's kind of a cute little touch. It's interesting yeah. because the theme tune, they play, I think it's the music of that song, but they don't have lyrics. They didn't do the whole thing with that yes right it's like the opening strings section so and uh bond is with sylvia trench who you all may remember as the woman he beat at baccarat in dr no and became his uh his temporary girlfriend on the side i feel sylvia trench is a hero in her own right honestly i swear because she's she's probably the only person in the franchise who's hornier than james bond like she's she's hassling she's hassling him to get laid True, yeah, and the uh, the only Bond girl to show up uh, more than once. Exactly, and she she's like trying to rein him in, and she can't because he keeps picking his job over her, I guess. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I think I just feel like Trench is a weirdly progressive character in, in her own little way. She's really she doesn't have a lot of screen time, but she seems to be completely her own woman pursuing whatever she wants to do, doing whatever the hell she likes. And uh, right. there's something oddly admirable about Sylvia Trench. It's a shame that I, I believe she will never, never be seen again after this movie. It is a shame. And there's, there's a lot of, as we go along, there's a lot of films where the, the main Bond girl who shares a bulk of the screen time with James is just a dud. And you kind of want, you will kind of want Sylvia at least to hang around throughout the Connery years. She certainly compliments him well. Yeah, but, uh, and, and she even coaxes Bond to stay. He does the first of his, uh, I'll report to you in an hour. And she says, oh, James. And he says, okay, better make that two hours. And uh, so they, you know, they get together in the back of his car. Man, that shit will get you written up so fast. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take an extended lunch break today, boss. <laughs> Can't say why. Uh, so then Bond goes back to, uh, back to MI6, uh, has another hat toss. Um, this one filmed differently so that the 
the rack is in the foreground and he's in the background and uh, nails it in one shot. I mean, I, I don't know how many takes that took, but uh, yeah, yeah, it looks great uh, on camera. It looks it looks good. I feel this one just because I think the shortening of it, because the change of perspective, moving to the foreground, him to the background, it's not as it's not as uh, surprising or as impressive a shot maybe as in Doctor No, but it's still it's still a good trick, and it establishes yeah. you know that Bond is a man who can throw a hat with a pretty alarming degree of accuracy. Yeah, and this actually is a, like a little. I think I mentioned this last time, but the the hat throwing is a running gag in all of uh, Connery's movies. Like he'll come in and throw it from different angles, and I think in one film he walks in and the hat is just next to the door, so he can't throw it. He just places it on the rack, and uh, and then Lazenby does it too. And then once we get to Roger Moore, uh, Bond never wears a hat again. So yeah, uh, out of fashion at that point. That's right. Yeah, it's all about the uh, the bell bottom suits. Uh, anyways, um, so Bond gets his mission from M, the wonderful M, played by Bernard Lee, and uh, it is during this scene that we get our first proper sequence with Q. And, the uh, real Q, not the that real... imposter from Dr. No. Yeah, not that asshole. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, tell me your thoughts about uh, seeing the first Q sequence. I think when I've always known Q's around just from watching the series, and when I went back from the beginning and proper, my eyes kind of lightened up when I saw Desmond Llewellyn walk into the room with the briefcase, and I'm like, oh, man, this is this is the first Q scene. That's awesome. So, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's super... It, it's quintessential to and Q uh, when you grow up watching these as a kid, like I Q the scene with Q was always like the best bit because he'd come in, he'd show you a bunch of outlandish yet oddly specific gadgets, like these things that like are designed to be utterly fantastical and yet like uh, managed to do just one very very tiny specific thing, and then you spend the rest of the movie guessing where they're going to use it. And that's yeah. exactly what they do in this one. <laughs> that well, this one, to be fair, I think the uh, the attaché case, as it's known, I think that one has certainly serves more of a multi-purpose. Kit, it's it's but, yeah, but, yeah it's, it's, uh, it gets crazier certainly as see as they start trying to outdo each other. Um, yeah, and I mean some of these gadgets. I mean one of the gadgets is a uh, fold-up sniper rifle uh, with the, yeah. immediately with an infrared sight. That's Pretty not really handy. a gadget. That's just something that you're not usually allowed to own. <laughs> And I read. It's just, I read it's, just yeah. in a, it's just in the briefcase, just in the middle of it. Like it's not tucked in. It doesn't click in or anywhere. It's just a briefcase with a gun in it. Yeah, I remember hearing a thing somewhere that the first gadget is he just gave him a briefcase that holds stuff. Pretty much, what a briefcase does that. That is but, true. Uh, this Q this is the original. A, yeah. Hmm? Go, no, sorry. What were you going to say? I was, I was say Q is like the original uh, Silicon Valley tech head. He just keeps inventing <laughs> stuff that already exists, but you know it's his now. You know, like yeah, Silicon Valley, they just Airbnb invented hotels recently um, by having so, and they've invented bosses. Uber invented a boss at one point recently. I feel Q is bringing that right, right back to the 60s. They just, they, they're reinventing, he reinvented the briefcase, but with the throwing knife, which would be super useful in the world. Oh, yeah. Business. And the, uh, and the knockout gas. The, and the, yeah. Yeah. I think this would be a fun thing to look for in all the films just to see which gadget does Bond get from Q that is the most grossly reverse engineered from something that happens later in the movie <laughs> it's true i mean these ones like we say these ones fit together a gun yeah. is a secret agent a throwing knife always handy uh, yeah. the the um, kill yeah you know and and the tear gas for his briefcase that makes sense as, as a thing uh, the 50 gold sovereigns is an interesting one i mean i feel that's very john wick obviously john wick came many years later i know there's been various other 
Yeah, you know, I did, but like, yeah, the fifty gold sovereigns, and I'm, I mean, I'm not really sure, like, sovereigns as a, because what, what does he need sovereigns for? Uh, where, I guess, I guess, I'm guessing it's just maybe it was just a, a widely accepted form of currency there. Like he could he could exchange them anywhere and get money. Yeah, I out assume of they must just be yeah, real gold or something. So they're just basically yeah. bits of gold. Yeah, it's it's just like honestly, you could have just been like, hey, there's like 50 bucks in the lining, you know, like if you need like dollars, they're accepted widely. Um, but yeah, it's it's it all works out, and and Llewellyn just kind of it's just it's cool to see him come in. He's still playing the same character. He's still Major Boothroyd. Um, he is. He's just a different actor, but this time he's introduced as the head of Q Division. And I guess later on that just gets shortened down to just Q. And um, it does. Yeah, he's he's just. I mean, he's such a fun character. And I mean, Llewellyn just. I was looking through his career, and he's not like he wasn't a successful actor. He didn't have a lot of other roles here and there. He really just kind of did a little bit of stage, a little bit of small roles in films, mostly uncredited. And then he got the the gig as Q, and he pretty much that was just what he did. And he really he loved doing, it. and he just he just showed up in Bond films for years, decades, thirty six years of of James Bond. Yeah, but how how great is it to have a career like that where you just show up for five minutes and everybody knows and loves you? I think yeah, that's, yeah, that's like the that's the ideal role for. Well, sure, yeah. I mean, and like I say, he's got like literally some of the best moments in every Bond film are Q's moments because they are they they shape the whole thing. They get everyone guessing, and it's yeah. it's just fun. And yeah, his his gadgets grow increasingly outlandish they're reasonably straightforward <laughs> here although honestly the uh, tear gas canister or whatever is going to take up a lot of space in the in the briefcase it's going to really diminish the i'm not even sure you can fit like a standard like legal brief in there with that true but, but it is magnetized so it doesn't fall from the edge of the lid that is good bro <laughs> i would imagine i don't know a lot about compressed canisters of noxious gas but you probably wanted to stay where you put it and he has to he he has to deactivate it by turning the latches horizontally before he can open the case. It's yeah, an that's distinction. That is one of those things you do not want to like before you've had coffee or whatever. I feel that's one that I wonder how many I feel like how many agents <laughs> yeah how, how many agents fell victim to that just because they weren't thinking. Uh just yeah they're they miss something in their mission and they they go to their hotel room they're staying and they're unconscious and like I forgot to turn the latches. Uh but uh, yeah, there's a there's a great sequence later where Bond is given the the hotel room in Turkey, and uh, while the Bond film is playing, uh, almost at full blast, uh, he's just casually striding around the room, searching for any sort of uh, uh, objects that could like recording devices. And I did notice he does turn the latches on his case, so I like I like the little attention to details. I noticed the same thing. They they yeah. and throughout the whole thing, there's always that focus on him. So he's this is what they pay in the big bucks. He doesn't. Yeah accidentally gas himself on the job yeah and then i did i never caught this because i always assumed I'm, I'm jumping ahead a bit but we get to the train sequence where it's uh bond and red grant in the cabin and i never caught that there's actually a a briefcase switch so to speak because i always assumed that bond uh knocks him out with his own briefcase but he actually takes the sovereigns out of his briefcase and he uses the uh the agent who was sent to meet with him's briefcase that's right. Yes, that rant. I don't know if you caught that too. I, I did. I noticed that, and it's and it's a very clever little touch because it is. And again, and that's one of those elements within this this script, which is all these little details. That was one of those really nice because that actually is something that if they didn't have to do it, but it really 
gels it together as as kind of a cohesive bond, knowing what he's doing, control the situation, planning ahead, and of course, it, yeah. and it, it it adds an element to it that kind of really works because we know it's going, you know, when it, when it gets down to that, we know he hasn't deployed the gas yet. And he's negotiating with Grant about something valuable things in the briefcase. And we're like, mm-hmm. okay, this is probably where this is going to happen. But there's still a little twist in the tail. Exactly. Let's talk about uh, Red Grant for a minute. Um, people seem to argue all the time as to whether or not he's considered a henchman or a villain. And I think I think he's, I would consider him a villain, but he's really part of a of a nest of villains because you have Rosa Klebb is also an upper tier villain and Kronstein is all, uh, they're, yeah. they're all villains. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really consider him a henchman, although he is, he is basically a formidable muscle, but he's also, he's also very smart and very cunning and he even bests Bond. I was, I was thinking that, uh, I mean, for me, I felt that there was no, there was when watching this, I took a note and I said there was there's no henchmen in this movie. So it's interesting that I think they were discussing the idea of that definition of it. And certainly, Cleb and Chessman are not they're not henchmen because they're senior yeah. management. They're you know they're up the lines. Um, but Grant is he's too autonomous an agent. He's really he's like the anti James Bond. He's he roams around. He he works under his own tactics and and executes his own plans uh granted he's been given a mission to complete but i mean he's basically like say he's he's james bond's counterpoint he's a completely autonomous entity he's not just like a lot of henchmen it's some person points at the bat at the good guy and says kill him and the henchman does it in whatever ridiculous manner that is you know their defining characteristic be it a sharp hash or whatever and um, so you know i i don't i would never consider him a henchman i don't think he fits that kind of mold he's he's too you know too debonair and, and independent for that he's sort of i, I definitely think he's a villain and i think he gets enough screen time and enough uh enough what you say like intermingling with bond that that he's certainly a villain in his own right Exactly. And I think that's part of the part of the joy of this movie is watching everything unfold the way Spectre wants it to go. And you, in the background of nearly every scene, there's just Red Grant lurking in the shadows, watching everything happen as it should. And there, yeah, there's something really cool and calm and calculating about him that it, you don't get another henchman. Um, I, if anyone were to be considered a henchman, I, w- I would have to say uh, Kree Lenku who's the nemesis of uh, Karen Bay, Bond's ally. But uh, other than that, yeah, I think it's all just straight up hero versus villains in this movie. Yeah, I, w- I would tend to agree. That's right, yeah. The, the other guys have lesser roles and that they're just, mo- they really are just muscle. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, get, a, we'll get a henchman proper in the next film. Don't, uh, don't you kids That's... out there worry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so let's talk, I just name dropped him. Let's talk about uh, Karen Bay. Bond heads over to Turkey and Karen Bay is his contact. And uh, continuing the, the trope of the Bond ally from Quarrel and Dr. No, we meet Karen Bay who's really kind of like the head of his own operation there. And I, let me tell you, I love this guy. I think he might be my favorite ally, if not one of my favorite characters in any Bond film. Um, he's charming. He's charismatic. He's not afraid to throw down. I, this guy is great. He's pretty cool. All right. And yeah, he sees, 
it like he feels like he's he's able to handle himself. They clarify that in the movie. He's kind of he's he's smart and he's he's tough, but he seems to carry the whole spy thing as like he's the guy at the boring job. And like he even says that's how they work in Turkey. Turkey is like the meeting of East and West, and so it's like yeah. the melting pot of Western intelligence agencies and the Soviet bloc. And so, as he says, they do things differently here. Like they openly follow each other the the russians and the british just openly follow each other all day and they and they just try and be polite to not do anything too unpredictable it's just like this endless pointless spy game but that's just what they're locked into and he sort of he understands he's in this kind of boring but always kind of shifting place and he's very i i just think he's a really fun guy to that he really captures this kind of work a day spy mentality and he's excited james bond has shown up because he finally gets to do something you know and then he yeah. goes and does a bunch of stuff he's got an army of sons uh but he's he also does. he's also really a, a, at times a no-nonsense businessman first because there's the sequence where he's in his office and he has his mistresses lounging on the couch and she begs him over and he like very begrudgingly gets up and goes oh, back to the salt mines <laughs> like <laughs> she- all right I'll, I'll, I'll go down on you, and then I got to get back to work. Oh, she she's like my honorary hero. His uh, I, I took a note <laughs> of this of Karen Bay's thirsty girlfriend. Uh, again, what is this? It's these women, Sylvia Trench, and 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 this woman is just like, geez, come on, let's get down to it. And and the guys are like, no, I'm too busy spying. Uh, yeah. How times have changed. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 terrible. Um, yeah, but you know, he still he put the time aside, so that that's always mm-hmm. plus. But yeah, he's he's really he's a really fun character. He really livens up the livens up kind of the shoot. Uh, every scene he's in, and he's kind of yeah, like he's I feel like he's just like a schoolboy. He feels like he's you know really getting to apply all this stuff that he hasn't done in a long time because he's you know kind of stuck in the middle of this shifting kind of quagmire where things don't really work at that you nothing works quickly and suddenly there's this big show-off between the russians and the the english although it turns out it's actually Mm -hmm. specter manipulating both sides and suddenly he's alive and he's like he's he's so excited to do this and that and everything which and and this is really interesting because i mean i i know we talked about this a little earlier is that the the actor pedro armender is this mexican actor was actually he was terminally ill with cancer shooting this this whole movie and yeah. he was in constant pain from this yeah. cancer and yet he's, he's limping throughout the movie that's not fake yeah yeah and it's saying like, and it's just like and yet his performance is so bright and fun it's a really it was kind of amazing to find that out and it's a really sad kind of a thing he died he actually committed suicide because of the pain and yeah. uh, I think four months before the film saw release, which is, you know, he didn't even get to see himself on the screen after this, which is super depressing. Yeah, he filmed, it's kind of remarkable because he filmed all of his scenes and then he made sure that his footage was complete so that his money would be secured for his family. Then he had a friend smuggle a gun into a hospital and he shot himself so that he wouldn't let cancer get to him. Live, yeah, which... live just like Karen Bay, like a fucking badass. Pretty much, honestly, that is that's pretty badass. And I think really a really cool touch reading up on this um, is in the film he has his sons are all his his allies. He's he's spying yeah. a family affair, so all these it's kind of almost a running joke that everyone they meet is one of his sons. 
Um, and then later on in, in real life, uh, many years later, his own son, Pedro Armendariz Jr., showed up in License to Kill. That's so right. In, honestly, that's kind of, kind of a cool little touch to that. I, I think that's like a fun little thing. But, you know, it's it's a really interesting element. That they, I mean, it's, no one really talks about Karen Bay. It's not one that I've really heard many people talking about. And definitely, I agree with you. I think he's a really great character. He's enlivens whatever he's involved in here yeah he's it's sad to see him just be so unsung but um but but yeah i think i think he's he's marvelous in this movie and going a bit back to what you just said about how his the actor's son appears in license to kill um we should really i should i should at least touch upon the uh the family behind the bond films uh bond is you know we all know was produced by or the original films were produced by cubby broccoli and uh harry saltzman and all of these films were like a family affair to them they got along really well with the cast and crew they basically used the same people over across each films um several directors uh did many movies in a row sometimes the editor would would become the director in later films but they really sort of treated these these films like a family event and uh, everybody was just warm and happy and welcome. And I think they knew the the scope of the project that they had on their hands and they really, really took care of everyone who they worked with. Um, so so kudos to them for uh, for casting Armando East Jr. in later films. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a perfect like it, it just makes so much sense when you look at it like this. Um, so, yeah, it's and it's, there's just so many fun elements to him. One of my favorite bits in the whole movie, honestly, is um, one point where Karen Bay gets shot in the arm. And this, and this is a really weird, odd kind of thing. Is it a mistake? I don't know. But he gets shot in his arm, and then he like uses the arm he was shot in to pick up the gun to transfer it to the other arm so he can keep shooting. And it's like, I don't think that's how getting shot works, but cool. Uh, you know, just these weird little bits and pieces with it, but, you know, he's he he holds up his own. He forgot he's got a periscope in the Russian embassy. How do you put a periscope yeah. in a building? Can anyone explain that? Is there any? That's my favorite gadget in the whole movie. I might add is the fact that there's a fucking periscope that they hid in a building. Yeah, I was having little uh, little flashbacks to uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where they kind of they go underneath his office, and there's like these these ruins and pillars, and they have <laughs> to take a little boat ride across, basically across the underneath of the city. And there's like rats on the oars, and uh, yeah, they have this secret periscope going into the office underneath like a desk, and it's just it's just part it's just part of what makes like this world so so brilliant, so well thought out is that they have these things. They do. Uh, well, well, I really like that because that's such a, an odd flight of fancy, and it's yeah. really it's you struck and like not even that, but it's like they they have a periscope that the and he pushes it up so it goes up into the office so it's in, yeah, i in wonder something. what that looks like in the office I, I wish there was some point of view shot from someone in the office but even then they have this incredibly unlikely surveillance system and then james bond uses it to basically check out tatiana's legs yeah so and uh <laughs> and that yeah, nice nice segue we got here tatiana romanova mm first uh bond girl who starts out as a well i wouldn't say she's a bond villain because she's kind of 
she kind of has this naivete towards her. She thinks she's doing, she doesn't know she's working for Spectre. She thinks she's working for the love of mother Russia. Yeah. But uh, I think, I think she's one of the stronger uh, bond girls and certainly one of the most gorgeous as well. If I'm allowed to say that nowadays, <laughs> I, I will, will, will run that through legal afterwards. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I feel, I do feel she's a step down from Andrus. I've got to admit because, Andrus was just so was so just strong in the film, and it's not that Andrus did anything in Doctor No. She didn't really. She just kind of hung around, but she just had a very strong will. It it felt to me. Tatiana is a little a little interesting to me in how she. I'm trying to decode the relationship between her and Bond, particularly in relation to her belief that she's working for Russia and she's been manipulated by. by Spectre because Spectre has flipped Colonel Kleb who used to work for Russia and so she's still she's now operating outside of that but she's she's still apparently able to pull in lower agents from the Russian regime they don't know she's flipped yet so she was able to hire Tatiana and that that interview she does with her has this weird quasi lesbian overtone to it which is a I mean, I guess it's kind of like one of those funny little things that you couldn't resist doing this older woman with her whip, her riding crop, slapping <laughs> the, the chair and everything, and Tatiana's uh, young, fresh-faced agent being sent out into the field. But um, my, my, I guess my, my question about this, I'm, I'm still trying to work it out exactly, is how much does how much has Tatiana really figured out? Because at a certain point, it looks like she's basically giving up her... Her, her mission is essentially to pretend to bring a cipher machine to British secret agents. Um, but she, her understanding, she's not actually going to do that. But at a certain point she flips over and she decides she is going to defect in reality. But at the same time, her relationship with James Bond is a, a little iffy at times. I mean, there's one point where, um, yeah, there's one point where, where Bond kind of turns real cold on her and, and kind of threatened like, there's this real feeling that he's it's in the train i believe where where you have the scene where he 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 kind of like lets it be known that honestly he could kill her and leave he doesn't like he's he's working it's work to him i'm trying to work out how much she knows because otherwise she's basically gives up her whole home country for what is effectively an abusive relationship yeah yeah that's a that's a good point i i like her because i think she has a real arc in the film because she's just she's like a naive soldier and she's working aimlessly for specter and uh but eventually she she does defect and i think that's sort of empowering on her part that she when she shoots rosa kleb but one thing i've always wondered while i'm watching this is that i know why bond is doing this and i know why spec what specter's motivations are i'm not quite sure as to what tatiana thinks is in it for her other than the fact that she might have the opportunity to sleep with the world's greatest secret agent um, yeah, it's, so it's, that, it's, I think that's what it boils down to. But because um, her task is basically to find this man and seduce him, because uh, you need to get this device. So, uh, but yeah. but yeah, that's that's really that's really all it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I think I think Claire promises promotion, like she promises her a promotion within her job in Russian intelligence. So I guess she's she's Probably doing it, it for career advancement. But it, yeah, it, the lines blur very quickly as the sides shift in this movie, and they shift very quickly and they shift very often. So it, at somewhere in the middle of a Tatiana, I feel becomes 
it's difficult to work out how empowered a person she is within it, which I mean is an interesting because I mean we shouldn't set very lofty goals for this within the Bond, particularly not within the very early Bond films of their yeah. time. I mean, the Bond girl is not exactly the most empowering concept uh, in how it was conceived, but um, there's a lot of room within there for interesting things. I just I'm just curious about how she like how they envision the character. I just, uh, cause there, there is that moment where Bond pretty much reveals that to him, it is a job mm-hmm. and he's, and you know, and he, and it's, it's kind of like when he shoots professor Dent and Dr. No, it's that kind of cold blooded streak, that kind of, you know, everything's jovial and fun and wink nod towards the camera, whatever. But you know, when need be, he'll pull the trigger and he will pull the trigger on Tatiana too. And we're not really left any doubt about that, but we also know that the movie will probably pull us away from that cliff. It won't, we're not going that dark and sure enough, we don't, but it makes me wonder why Tatiana keeps following him or following him aside from the fact that she's given up on her home country. It's really, there's a very dark uh, divide within Tatiana at a certain point in this film where she really can't go back, but I'm just wondering what's propelling her forward towards bond because he's like we 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 can all think Bond is cool and fun and everything, but he's kind of a dick. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to be relying on him for certain things, and uh, not emotional support for one thing. So, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> interesting. It's an interesting <laughs> element within. It. I think it's it's funny. I think um, that she was again. We have the the legacy from from uh, Dr. No of the dubbed Bond woman. Again, uh, Tatiana Romanova was played by Daniela Bianchi, who's Italian, and she was took English lessons in the run-up to this, and she presumably spoke a little bit of English before that. She did enter Miss World, and she was a runner-up in Miss World prior to this, which I guess got her the exposure. I'm pretty sure you probably pick up a couple of words in English in that, because I think you have to spout something in the microphone but uh mm. she she did all effort to like learn english she took it very seriously and they still just dubbed her <laughs> yeah that's uh not an uncommon thing in these early bond films all the girls get dubbed they are um, really international yeah. affairs though i have to admit looking through the cast and everything for these movies they really these films they're globe hopping off from their storyline but i mean these casts are coming from all over the place and uh, which is kind of cool which is kind of an interesting oh, yeah. Thing. You know, a lot of them, it's sort of like, we'll just hire a person and have them put on an accent. And it's like, admittedly, they're not always, the, the people are, the characters from all over the place and the actors are from all over the place. They're not necessarily from the same places as the characters they're playing. Right, right. But it's still, uh, it's still an interesting. Yeah, we mentioned yes, Armandaris yeah. is Mexican and he's playing a Turkish man. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, close, close there is, enough. <laughs> yeah, back then, it was, <laughs> back then it was perfect. And it, I think it still holds up. <laughs> But um, all right. So uh, I mean, I think we can we can safely I uh, skip skip ahead in the plot a bit. I love that uh, the central conceit behind obtaining the Lecter device is really just an act of terrorism on Bond's part. Uh, <laughs> he blows up the Russian consulate in Turkey so that he can break in during all the commotion and grab the device and run out. Basically, is is how that works. That's right. And one of the things I noticed about that, watching the second time, is there's um, a piece of conversation before that where they talk about what day they're going to do it on. And they originally plan on uh, Friday the 13th, I think, or just on the 13th. And Bond, like, dismisses that, and and Tatiana accuses him of being superstitious. But he's like, no, we're going to go on the 14th. And then he surprises everyone by just doing it on the 13th ahead of schedule so that no one knows what's happening, so no one could leak the information or whatever, I guess, because he doesn't trust Tatiana yet. But I thought it was a really nice touch because it's, 
is Bond actually superstitious? The audience has to consider this too. Like, you know, it didn't feel like it would be, but no, it turns out he's completely thorough and clever and on top of things. It's a really nice little detail in the script again. And this, and I think From Russia With Love just is full of these clever little details that kind of enunciate elements of the characters very well without really calling huge amount of attention to themselves. There's a, there's a great little moment in, um, I'm skipping ahead a few films and on her Majesty's secret service, uh, bond is at one point, um, captured and taken to, uh, the father of Tracy De Vincenzo's office. Um, she would be the, Tracy's the bond girl in that film. And he's taken to her father's office and bond, uh, knocks out all the guys who brought him there and he pulls out a knife and he throws it at a calendar behind her father, and it lands on, I think it lands on the 12th. And he looks at the calendar, and he says, oh, but today's the 13th, Mr. Bond. And Bond says, I'm superstitious. So <laughs> I, I think that's it's something they, uh, they they kept going in that film. Yeah, toying with the idea. But yeah, you're, you're right. As, as we move forward in the, in the plot, it's basically Bond just uh, blows up the Russian, Russian consulate. I was trying to get a screen grab of this one extra when the bomb goes off, and he pulls this ridiculous-looking position where he throws his hands up in the air while the camera is shaking oh, yeah. to make it look like it's just a really he's just a really comical look so if you're watching the movie keep an eye out for the guy who just looks momentarily really goofy when the bomb goes off not that i yeah. if i were in a building that was being bombed i don't know how cool i'd look either before we uh i think we we skipped ahead over before the bombing of the consulate we have what i think has to be the first sex tape within a film no? yeah I, this is the the stuff eight millimeter is made of yeah so last doctor no we we asked and we haven't gotten any answers yet if as to whether or not that was the first instance of someone crawling in an air duct so now uh with from russia with love is this the first instance of a sex tape being made in a movie Again, I, I can't think any earlier ones off the top of my hand. I'm sure there were some sex tapes going around Hollywood proper, but uh, yeah, you know, and it's such <laughs> an eight millimeter yeah. cameras. Yeah, they were difficult to do back then too. Like you say, you had to have, you know, you had the, the lighting pretty okay, and and they do it in this weird where they have like a, it's it's oddly seedy, and it's, it's interesting because because Bond comes in. We mentioned earlier, he checks out the hotel room and he finds the bug, and then he finds the real bug because he found the decoy bug. And he's scoping out his hotel room and he decides he wants to change suite. And then it yeah. turns out they predicted all of this. They predicted he'd do that and they offered him the other suite. And he doesn't find in that the giant one-way mirror over the bed, which apparently has a camera rigged up there to film a sex tape to be used potentially as blackmail. Which I like I just, uh, yeah, yeah, Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm just thinking. I'm just wondering, like, what's, what's the market value on a secret agent sex tape? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, it's meant to basically bring the British uh, nation down. But um they, they I, I, horrified. Yeah, yeah. I like that uh I like that the, when Bond finds that his room his first room is bugged, he calls the front desk to switch rooms and the manager to try to turn him against the idea tell he's like tell him the only room available is the bridal suite as if a man wouldn't be caught dead in the bridal suite, but Bond's really just sort of comfortable with his own sexuality he's like oh i might like it let's have a look yeah i feel like the bridal suite is gonna have a bigger bed so i'm yeah oh, I, sure. like that's an upgrade in my language i'll Probably go like a nice bathroom too yeah probably so yeah I, that one is an odd one i'm like hell yeah take the bridal suite i'm probably just showing out i just like nice things for sure so um jumping ahead a bit uh i think does the uh does the consulate bombing happen after the gypsy sequence i think it does it we're does sk- i believe we're skipping we're skipping around but 
Anyways, Bond is uh, taken to a gypsy camp with Karen Bay, where he gets to watch uh, two women uh, cat fight and wrestle around for to see who will marry Karen Bay's son. I think that was the, the setup of that arrangement. And then they're attacked by one of uh, Spectre's agents, and uh, there's a real a real fracas going on. And um, Bond is uh, running around, causing stirring shit up. And one guy tries to kill Bond, but Red Grant is watching the whole thing, and he actually saves Bond's life. And Bond kind of spins around, confused as to who shot this guy. I think that's a nice little touch in the film. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on there, and uh, yeah, and that's one of two instances where his life is saved by by Grant for yeah. grander devious means, which again really highlights for me the fact that Grant is not he's he's an equal to Bond. He's like the antithesis of Bond. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, it, interestingly enough, when the tables are turned, uh, Bond does not save Grant's life. <laughs> so, in a that's way, it's, I mean, is it Grant's hubris? Perhaps um, I don't. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I mean it's really all to make Bond suffer, but in the end they they screw up. Like, they could have just killed him, but they don't want to do that. Uh, at See, that Red Grant, Red Grant's good, but he gets a little too arrogant, and that that kind of that, that backfires in his face when Bond uh, when Bond ultimately kills him because he he has that that old man line that uh, strangles him to death. That's right. But, yes. Uh, but yeah, the gypsy sequence is uh, is fantastic. <laughs> it's then, a sight to behold for sure. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure that one would hold up quite so well nowadays. But uh, here yeah. we are, 1963, uh, with the their incredible depiction of the Romani population. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, Eventually, all of the elements and events in the film come together in one of the greatest train ride sequences uh ever committed to celluloid um bond and tatiana have their own compartment uh karen bay's in another compartment and red grant has also smuggled himself aboard and uh unfortunately karen bay he's murdered by red grant and this goes back to what you mentioned about bond not having any sympathy is that he hardly seems to bat an eye at the death of karen bay it's it's like he kind of knows internally well he was he knew what he was getting into and it's unfortunate that he died but i must move on yeah, yeah, very business. Uh, yeah. He gives he he brings a memento out for his son, I guess, which is something you know, kind of a, a and I guess a kind of an honor between fellow spies. But yeah, it's it's not like it's sadder for the audience than it is for for Bond, for sure. Um, anyways, uh, Red Grant drugs Tatiana, and he holds gun- Bond at gunpoint. Um, and then it leads to one of the tensest scenes in the series, followed by one of the best fight scenes in the series. For sure, yeah. These these are really, really, uh, this is a great sequence. And it's one of those ones that, looking back on it now, the, the fight between Grant and Bond is really an impressive piece of choreography. It's a really brawny, kind of messy, you know, messy in that way that had to take a lot of planning kind of fight uh it took a lot of planning it took a couple weeks i think to shoot and uh bond and uh or excuse me connery and uh, robert shaw did basically almost all of their own stunts during yeah it. and it, and it would be hard it would be hard to double them out because it's in a real tight cramped train carriage effectively i do want to yeah. mention i think that's really entertaining and it's again that weird british class kind of con- class conscious element to it that um Red Grant does just part of his whole thing because we don't, we don't really know where Grant is from. He's just he's an agent, 
from mm-hmm. somewhere, and but he's been bred and trained, like pr- practically bred, like he's on this weird um, training ground, which we might, we might, we should mention certainly uh, that the training ground that he comes from has the most, there's the most insane training ground in, in cinema, effectively. Oh. Now, that great oh, yeah. tracking yeah. shot across where there's just a bunch of people doing random, like, action movie stuff all in close proximity to each other in a way that is like this guy's doing just karate sparring and a guy shooting a flamethrower at a brick wall and some other guy shooting a target and they're all right beside each other it's like if the guy with the flamethrower you know turns a little bit too much he's just gonna fry someone yeah no that's uh that's part of specter's training is that they uh we use live targets as well rosa club says and uh, and Re- and Red Grant gets a great introduction in that sequence too, because he's out just getting a massage and while well, he's sun tanning, and then when he stands to attention to meet Rosa Klebb, she puts on a pair of brass knuckles and hits him right in the stomach, and he doesn't even flinch. That's right. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, establishing him as a tough guy, but I was saying we we don't really know where he's from, but then we finally speak because yeah. he do- he doesn't speak for he almost the like, entire movie. Like eighty minutes into the film, he says his first lines, and he's doing a British accent. Exactly, and he's and he's very consciously doing a British accent because the, the actor uh, is is English, but the accent mm-hmm. that he comes up with is almost this comically over the top British accent. Um, yeah. so so he's clearly, I guess, he's supposed to be Russian or some you know from somewhere else, but that he's been bred to mix in and be able to have the breeding to mix in as a gentleman spy. But of course, nothing is perfect, and Bond is tipped off by the fact that he has red wine with fish. Which is one of those fantastically goofy things. Because firstly, I don't know a lot about food or about wine. And yet I don't really recall ever seeing someone having red wine with fish. So that's kind of like a kind of a giveaway. Um, and secondly, it's just the idea that it's like, oh, I can tell you weren't one of us because you had the wrong beverage with dinner. It's this absurd, you know, the concept of civilization, quote unquote, or breeding. Um, it's that weird, like, old British Empire worldview that just filters through this ever so often. Oh, yeah. Bond becomes an obnoxious know-it-all throughout the series. And a lot of that is him calling people out on their choice of wine. Uh, like, he identifies a, one henchman later on because he asks for the henchman produces a Rothschild for him to drink. And. Uh, Bond says, oh, it's unfortunate. I, I wish you would have had a Claret in stock. And uh, the henchman says, I'm so sorry, we're out of Clarets. And Bond says, Rothschild is a Claret. And then he kills him. Oh, you but, see, uh, and that's, yeah. that's the stuff. Yeah, I mean, and, and <laughs> got James Bond and all his drinking. Uh, this is stuff you don't learn in school, kids. <laughs> that's right. Red wine with fish is a no-no. Um, that'll get you killed on a, on a fast-moving train. Yeah, but uh, but I like at the that little sequence where Red Grant is having dinner with Tatiana and Bond. You see Red Grant pours Tatiana a drink, and he just very swiftly dips his finger into it, and it cuts to Bond, and Bond catches like a glimpse of it, and you can you can tell he notices, but he doesn't say anything. And then when they get back to the train compartment, he get, he just asks him, "So what did you drug her with?" And um, I, yeah, I what he what he responds something that knocks her out. But uh, yeah, and then Red Grant pulls his gun on Bond, and he he basically has Bond defeated. Um, it's only with uh, with Bond's own cunning that he gets out of the situation, and which is in a, a highly improbable sequence. But um, just one <laughs> one that, uh, but yeah, but one that uh, you know it, I think works because of the the cockiness of Red Grant, because it, it it does devolve into that cat that territory where it's like the villain 
has the hero at gunpoint and he says, you know, I, uh, before I kill you, here's my whole plan. And it gives the hero just enough time to escape. It's true. Uh, I, I buy it here, but um, in, in later yeah, I think, films. Yeah, I think, I think it works places. here. Yeah, it works here, I think, right, granted, because it is established that he's, he's very sure of himself and that becomes his, his failing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he certainly gives out way too much information. He starts telling him all about how, um, you know, how it was never Russia, it was Spectre all along. It's like, no one needs to know that, really. Uh, you know, just in case something goes wrong, because that's, you know, pretty sensitive information to be throwing around. I think it's interesting when he drugs uh, Tatiana, because I guess at this point, Ray Grant goes, comes in as Bond is supposed to be met by another agent who's going to lead them over the border. Yes. Grant, Cap, Grant is playing that agent. So there's this interesting cat and mouse element to this. And again, in relation to Tatiana, that Bond is originally going to interpret this guy as being his his fellow agent. And he does something to Tatiana. And Bond is, like, it's very clear at this point that maybe he's drugging Tatiana for, who knows, to dump her somewhere, just get rid of her, whatever. Bond doesn't have a problem with that, apparently, mm-hmm. or maybe he doesn't. So again, it, it heightens this element of Bond being for all his jokiness and for their weird professions of love and things that Bond doesn't really give a crap about this girl. And this girl has given up her homeland completely hundred percent for, for James Bond. So it's, again, it highlights a very odd, um, uh, kind of troubling for me, honestly, element of the film. It's a pretty light breezy film in a lot of ways, but uh, that's definitely one that it's leads to some interesting questions in terms of her motivation. And And that's one of the reasons why I feel like maybe she's, Admittedly, uh, Honey Rider in Doctor No does not really get to do a lot. Um, she just kind of hangs around a bit, and then her pants disappear, as we've discussed previously. <laughs> um, but you know, it's but she see- to this day, yeah, who knows? We'll we'll never know. But she she felt very strong willed and, and assertive in the time she was there. She also gets drugged. Um, this is something that happens a lot. I guess they just knock girls out and bring them out. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting kind of element to that. I feel that there's maybe a trade down a little bit with Tatiana. But then again, Tatiana is a much, there's a lot more going on. But mm-hmm. I guess within that, there's right. a lot more that could go wrong when more is going on as well. I like the exchange um, where the, there's this code to identify agents in the field where um, one of them one of them puts a cigarette in their mouth and, and he approaches the other agent and he asks, can I borrow a match? And the other one says, I use a lighter until they go wrong. And that's, that's how they identify each other. And I was reminded back in, uh, in the first Mission Impossible film, he has to identify himself to an agent by asking him for a match at a bus stop. So I, th- I think that's, you know, one of the little, the little details that you see everywhere in film now. But I think back then it was very, very neat. And, and part of Red Grant's stalking Bond is that he, he picks up on the code and he walks up to Bond when he's supposed to meet him face to face for the first time. And he pu- just, he basically pulls out his, ci- his cigarette case and they don't even bother going through the exchange because they know who they're there for. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a it's a nice little trick. I must admit, the first time they have that conversation when Bond first shows up in the airport and is met by the guy, they when they first have that conversation, it's not immediately clear that it's a coded conversation. I was just yeah. looking at the screen thing like, this is very bad dialogue, whoever wrote this. And then it became clear, like, oh, okay, I see. <laughs> that makes sense then. Exactly. So Bond, uh, Bond kills Red Grant. They get off the train. They take uh, Red Grant's ride. And uh, which leads to a helicopter chase followed by a boat chase. And for 1963, uh, I know you pointed out a glaring issue in the helicopter crash sequence. But in in any case, back then, these looked stunning. 
Yeah, no, they're uh, in, they're pretty in, solid. They're solid. Um, they're solid uh, sequences. There is certainly, I think, um, an element here of of because we, we we talked about uh, in Doctor No, and you mentioned North by Northwest as maybe being a very clear antecedent to the Bond franchise, the kind of the world hopping mm-hmm. intrigue. There's a lot of Hitchcock in From Russia with Love. We have the trains first off, which is a huge. Oh, yeah. And then we have the helicopter swooping over Bond. It's clearly a North by Northwest uh, parallel uh, where Bond ducks down and is looking for cover to it. And then, yeah, we have a boat chase. I don't know if Hitchcock had major. Well, I guess Catch a Thief had some stuff on boats, so, but that came later. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, but there's, there's definitely that, that element. I feel there's just a lot of mirrorings of Hitchcock and reflections of it. And I wonder, I, I'm guessing maybe Hitchcock enjoyed a couple of Bond movies in his time. He never got to direct one. They might not have been able to afford him. He might have wanted to do too much weird stuff in it. I don't know. Would have been an interesting prospect, though, to have a, a Hitchcock Bond movie. Yeah. I wonder how well Cary Grant if, would have done if you gave him a, a sniper rifle and some grenades to fight back against that airplane in North by Northwest. It's, it's, we'll never know. I guess Roger Zero Thornhill would have come up with something. <laughs> but yeah, it's, and yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, the, the helicopter to talk about that, there, it is a really glaring. And it's interesting because I was reading about the, the film. The, this film had a lot of, for, although they doubled the budget, they had a lot of accidents and just mm-hmm. delays in this movie. Terrence Young and a couple of other people had crashed in a helicopter, crashed into a body of water and the helicopter sank, but they all escaped with minor injuries and went right back to work apparently. Yeah. Um, which I think is especially funny compared to um, uh, the, the actress, Bianchi's driver fell asleep driving her to the set one morning and ran out, went off the road and she received some minor bruises on her face and that held up production because well, the, the director can nearly drown, but as long as he doesn't drown, everything's fine. But if the lead actress's face is a little less pretty, then that's everything's dead in the water. So the the film they lost a boat full of cameras. They sank at one point during the boat chase. They just had mm-hmm. like a some and uh, the big explosion in the boat scene. You know, burned it injured several stuntmen. So there was a bunch of accidents in the movie. It was running late. They had to really rush to to hit their their deadline for release. And I guess that kind of explains the fact that in the helicopter sequence there is a whopping error, uh, which, I mean, I wasn't even looking for. And I know you can, when you really tune in on a film and you're watching them over and over again and really paying attention and starting to look away from the main action, sometimes you catch a lot of little things. They're not uncommon. But this, I wasn't even looking for this, and it was just right up there on the screen to be seen. When the helicopter crashes and explodes, Bond runs away from it and it's a long shot it's clearly a stunt man and bond runs away from the burning helicopter and then another guy just starts running in from the right hand side of the frame towards the helicopter and i don't know if it's an actor replacing him for a next setup or if it's a safety guy coming in maybe to start extinguishing or just to make sure but like it's there's another guy on the screen running towards an exploding helicopter for, and he just shouldn't be there and it's just an incredibly noticeable error I didn't notice that when I watched it, but I'll have to. I'll, next time I put this on, I'll have to keep an eye out for that. That's a pretty. Really? That's a pretty big gaffe. But there's a. There will be. There will be many of those to be sure. Um, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it's it's one of those. 
especially in the the Roger Moore era, if, uh, if you know what I well, mean. Well, yeah, as, as we've discussed, yeah, I mean, Jesus, like that digitally removed the Zimmer frame from the later ones. Yeah. All right. So, um, so Bond uh, destroys some Spectre boats and a Spectre helicopter. He makes it back to his hotel room with Tatiana, and they have the Lecter. But there's a final bit of business to take care of with uh, Rosenklub's poison shoe. Oh, the poison shoe. We're right yeah. back where we began. Yeah. So any any sort of I, and and now that I think about it, uh, has there been a film where you're able to kick your foot down and a dagger comes out of the toe of it? Uh, I I don't I don't I'm, recall anything earlier than this. I, I'm sure I've seen accounts because I know spies did the knife hidden in the sole of a shoe is a real thing. That was mm. an actual wartime thing. Ah, okay. Um, but uh, that's different to the blade popping out and still being on your shoe. Um, and the poison blade is a, is a different element to it. I, what, I, what I enjoy about this sequence is a very weird visual aesthetic here of basically James Bond with a chair. Because, I mean, the the actress for this, um, Lotta Lenya, is, she's not a young, spry woman. So it's, it's James Bond, the paragon of macho <laughs> domination, basically corralling an elderly woman who's just trying to kick him in the shin. And it's this very weird fight after, especially after all the intensity of like Bond versus Grand in the train, which is like, and it's funny because it, it, Bond versus Grand in the train reminds me of something like that, a great grappling fight in like one of our favorite films, Jean-Claude Van Damme's Maximum Risk. There's a, mm-hmm. a there's a fantastic like red fight in the middle of that film that I just think really is a really expertly edited choreographed action sequence it's not like outlandishly extravagant but it's just really gritty and tough and and you really feel the kind of the the strength of the whole thing and the the exertion I guess of it um if that reminds me of that action movie, this reminds me of another action movie that's less good something like say Steven Seagal's fire down below which is a movie that basically after Steven Seagal's finished everything up, the last order of business involves him kicking the shit out of an elderly Chris Christopherson just because. And, and that's like this really awkward thing where Chris Christopherson is the villain, but he's also an elderly man. And um, But Steven Seagal, being the absolute all-American hero he is, still kicks the bejesus out of him. Um, and and this is kind of the same feeling in this, is that, you know, Cleb is basically trying to clear up her error and uh, she can't, and it's, it's just a comical kind of a fight. But I, I really, I like the idea of the shoe because, I mean, I feel like we've all been kicked in the shin at some point, and it really hurts. And it's and also the idea of just that the blade and the kind of, you know, it's below your eye line. You're not really paying attention to it. It's very neat, and it's kind of sneaky. It's it's really, like I said, it's always stuck in my memory. It's always been something I've I've remembered from the series. So mm-hmm. I, I I think it's just a really nice little element, and it makes sense to bring it back around to that for the final film. And this is also the final scene of the film. And we mentioned this is also where Tatiana really unequivocally uh, dedicates herself to Britain or to, to moves away from Russia where she disarms Cleb. Um, yeah. So she basically commits to James Bond um, despite whatever reservations we may have about that. And we know she doesn't show up in the next movie. So hopefully she got citizenship or something. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they ride off happily in their boat and uh, Bond uh, throws the sex tape out in the water. 
he throws that out and they're in a boat again which um this makes it by my count uh by the end of dr no and the start of this one with sylvia trench and then the end of this movie with um with tatiana that's like three instances of bond banging in a boat um which is a return i know he's a navy man you you mentioned that the last time this this brings me out to to my um to to my my terrible joke that may see james bond is is just like american beer because he's fucking close to water uh yeah i really <laughs> i really want to bring that one out that's one for sean whenever he listens back to this uh uh-huh. he'll appreciate that one but yeah that's a that's a terrible that. a terrible joke but it is interesting that in two movies there's three sex scenes in a boat or right beside a boat i guess sylvia trench at the start of this movie they they start in the boat and they move to the just the shoreline, but it's still, there's a boat still there. They probably oh, yeah. didn't do it in the car. I'm, he, the man, he he takes the motion of the ocean very seriously. Yeah, this is, and that, that's not an uncommon thing. Um, with uh, with many of the Bond films, it usually ends with the destruction of the villain's base and the Bond and the Bond girl get out. And so what's left but then just to have some great happy sex uh, yeah. near this body of water. I, I feel I feel it would be more sordid and more cheeky if Bond kept the sex tape, you know? <laughs> I feel like, I, and I get the feeling, honestly, by James Bond's character, he probably would actually have kept the sex tape and reviewed it and that's, kind of, like, engaged yeah. his performance. But whatever. Yeah, we're, we're a more wholesome time. Yeah, that's true. And there's actually, there's in on Her Majesty's Secret Service, there's a little moment where uh, Lazenby looks in his desk and he pulls out some mementos that appeared in previous Bond films in a cute little scene. So, uh, yeah, I think, a, I think a reel of, of film would not be out of place in that desk. But, sure. uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's from Russia with Love. Um, well, we've got to run some numbers for sure. This, this is a very important part that we're, we're going we're gonna to run through this. We, we decide we keep track of a couple of things, so I'm trying to keep tabs on stuff. And if you feel any corrections or we're not giving fair shrift to certain things, let us know. Okay, yeah. so we're, we're keeping, we're keeping real, a run on. Uh, real hmm? quick, I wanted to just add, because our, our, our colleague Sean, um, he, uh, he said he, he, he missed that we uh, did not include the budget or the, uh, the box office gross of Dr. No, so I just want to quickly insert that here. Uh, Dr. No was shot on a budget of $1 million and it grossed uh, $59 million at the box office. Uh, oh, wow. 1962, not too shabby. That's that's a lot. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so because I thought from Russia with Love, is that like extended like ever since it was released when like they did re-releases, I wonder? Was that actually the just over, overall box office gross since original release? Um, I, that, oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm just looking at uh, Wikipedia's overall, the box office mojo. You don't have to dig too deep. I was just curious because I know this one, um, was what, shot for 2 million and made about 78 million was the figure I saw, I think. Oh yeah, it's crazy. If you, uh, right around Thunderball is when the series just explodes and Thunderball, if you adjust it for inflation, it's actually, I think the highest grossing Bond film or one of them. And it's like the 30th highest grossing film of all time. Wow. Okay. So, uh, and I I just want to add a correction here. Dr. No made uh, 16 million uh, domestic, so it might have been fifty nine million worldwide or something. Okay. But, uh, anyways, it's still a good chunk of change. That's still yeah, that's more money than I'm ever going to see. I can tell you that. Yeah, uh, same here. Yeah, uh, Thunderball. Actually, interesting. I'll tell you right now. My only memory of that is the bulletproof shield in the back of the car. 
Um, so that'll be an interesting one to revisit when we get there, which will be coming up reasonably soon. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll keep my thoughts sealed until until we get. Yeah, to yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to that all in good time. We got we got a long way to go till Bond twenty five at cinema. That's right. Um, two so years. Two years exactly. <laughs> we're we're doing the long run here, guys. <laughs> so right. we'll we'll pull back to to the numbers. So one thing we're keeping tab on is body count because mm-hmm. it's all about body count. It's the best thing. I'm just keeping a track really on Bonds. Who Bond kills? Lots of other people die. Who cares? Um, you know, so in this movie, I counted that Bond killed nine people, uh, and I and I put this together. He shoots five people during the gypsy party. Um, mm-hmm. Two of those shots, admittedly, it's kind of like it's difficult to tell, but it looks like he hits someone. So I think that's five people there. We're going to assume he shot them; they're dead. He kills yeah. Grant on the train. He right. blows up the two guys in the helicopter. And then there's one guy he shoots successfully, I believe, on the boat chase. Now, he does blow up a bunch of stuff on the boat chase, so we may presume they're all dead. I don't know. It's hard to count it up, so I'm going to just leave it at about nine people. Yeah. Uh, there's also an element of doubt because the flower seller that they get off the they get off the train, there's a guy selling flowers, and he's actually meeting Grant. He's actually an agent, and Bond steals his truck and ties him up and then brings him on the boat with him. And then he asks the guy, uh, can you swim? And before the guy can confirm, he throws him overboard. <laughs> so there's a strong chance that man's also dead. Before but I'm not confirm. Yeah, before, who knows? Maybe he can swim. Maybe right. not. James doesn't care. So yeah. that's a possibility that, that it's actually 10 people. But I'm going to go with an official Bond kill count of nine, which brings our running tally to 12. He only killed three people in, in Dr. No. He was very reserved and polite in that movie. Um, so if, if you have any uh, objections, guys, let us know. If you feel for sure that you remember someone else going the way of the, the late whoever uh, by, by James Bond's hands, um, the next thing we're, we're keeping tabs on, because this is only going to get more interesting as we go along, is the age difference between James Bond and the Bond girl. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, it is about 12 years. Ooh. Sean Connery's, yeah, Sean Connery's about 33, um, and Danielle Bianchi was about at 20, 21, 21 in this. So, so uh, Interesting. They yeah. doubled the budget, and then they doubled the age difference of Bond and the Bond girl. So I wonder uh, was that in the contract that that because that is exactly right. They doubled. That was only six years between Connery and Andrus. So they just now nah, she's old maid. Needed some need a trainer in for a younger model, even though he was not any younger himself. So you know, so that one, as we've commented before, that one's going to get a little bit hectic later on. We're going to see some interesting numbers there. Probably at some point, want to swap the body count with the age difference for like slightly <laughs> less reproachable stuff. But anyway, and, oh. and also, and, and our next incredibly because we're very enlightened and we're we're very sex positive here. Uh, how yeah. many women did did, uh, sh- did did James Bond sleep with? I'm counting uh, four instances, four women in this movie, um, with Sylvia Trench, Tatiana, mm-hmm. and probably a threesome with the Gypsy women. Um, we're going to assume that happened. It definitely happened. James oh, yeah, Bond no made doubt. that happen, no question. So that brings us to a running total of James Bond by film number two. Two, there's 24 of these things yet, and a 25th one in the making. James Bond has had sex with six women. That's Sylvia twice. I'm only counting six six women with Sylvia two times, but I'm only counting her once. We've accounted for that. But that's in two movies. It's an average of three per per movie thus far. Maybe I should keep a run on the averages too. I don't know. We'll see. Not a bad idea. 
It'll so only go up. They will, yeah. Um, so there you go. That that's that's what it's like to be a secret agent. Um, you kill nine people, um, and then bed four more. He's got a license to kill and a license to thrill. You can't stop him. That's uh, no, you you definitely can't. I don't know if you should. There's a little bit of a forceful aspect to some elements of this, but uh, we'll we'll deal with that probably later on. Um, yeah. There's some there's some interesting politics here. Anyway, so uh, yeah, would you say uh, should we wrap up this episode? I think we had a pretty good discussion. Sure, yeah, no, I'd, and uh, I would definitely say um, this is an interesting one for me to go back to because this is again very early in the very early in the franchise, but this is very very much everything I'm expecting from a Bond movie, and this I feel a lot of times these movies are overlooked a little bit because they're a little older. People tend to prefer the Bond they grew up with, you know, maybe. Um, you know, for me, I know certainly Roger Moore movies were the ones I grew up with, so I have maybe more of a recollection, more exposure to them. But um, this is really, uh, this is a very strong film. It's it's yeah. difficult, like, and it's, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on how do you maintain this pace? And I know they don't, obviously, there's, there's always going to be a couple of dips. Um, but this is, they really set themselves a difficult task. They, they really successfully upped the ante on this one as compared to the first one and the, the difficult second album really paved the way for an even more difficult third album, which we're going to, we'll get into in the next episode. Yeah. This, this revisiting this, um, it's funny. I, I have like, I have my list of favorites, which I won't exactly reveal here, but I always seem to forget about how great from Russia with love is. And I think, I think I, as of now, just in my head, I'm making a mental list. I think I'm going to put it as my second favorite bond film. Uh, of the entire series um what's number wow. one you'll you'll find out soon enough don't worry that's, but, that's uh, pretty high ranking for sure but, that's but yeah if you're uh if you're looking to uh to check out the bond series and if you've if you've watched dr no and that's all you've seen i i implore you to check out from rush with love and uh, even if you haven't seen dr no i think from rush with love is still a fantastic film to dive into um, oh, yeah, no, on the pleasures totally of Dr. Agree. No, but this, this film is quite excellent in its own right. And a, yeah, in, yeah. In your perfect Bond film. One handy thing with Bond movies is honestly, you, I think obviously some are better than others, but you can totally dive in here. There's nothing you, there's touches you'll miss, you know, elements like that, but like, there's nothing here that you need to know about Dr. No. It's not that difficult of to get course. it. James Bond wins. Everyone else loses. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, this has been for your ears only. Uh, you can check us out on the Optimism Vaccine Network. You can email us any questions, thoughts, comments, concerns at optimismvaccine at gmail.com uh, or tweet at the uh, the OV uh, Twitter account. It's just at Optimism Vaccine. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jake Tropila. And uh, Jack, where can the good people find you? I can be found at Real Jack Eason at Twitter. That's, that's right. Whatever. Twitter.com. No bullshit here. No, no bullshit. No bullshit. Yeah. So uh, until then, uh, we will see you next month when we will be returning. For your eyes only, we'll return with Goldfinger. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs>